0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Hensley-McBain. Today's episode is part 14 of an ongoing series entitled COVID-19 Answering the Questions. This series features brief updates on the latest incidents and clinical data related to COVID-19 diagnosis, prevention, and management, each followed by an in-depth question and answer session designed to address infectious disease specialists most pressing COVID-19 questions. During this episode, Dr. Vikram Mukherjee from New York, New York, will provide an update on COVID-19 mortality trends. For more information about Dr. Mukherjee and for a link to additional online education from CCO's COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear a brief COVID-19 update and answers to clinician questions by Dr. Mukherjee. Um,
1: Thank you, Tiffany. Uh, Hello, everyone. My name is Vikram and uh, thank you for coming to this uh, COVID-19 webinar. Um, We will go over some slides on a global status update followed by some uh, population mortality trends that we're seeing across the country here in the US followed by uh, a fair amount of time answering any questions and issues that you might be having. Um, So starting with some numbers, this is data from early this morning. Um, As you know, this pandemic, even with the advent of a vaccine, continues to rage across the entire globe. Um, the global confirmed cases, which, as you might imagine, is still a gross underestimate of real cases, uh, is around 75 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States with 16 million leads the pack with India, Brazil, Russia and France all uh, following you know, that number. The number of deaths that this horrible pandemic has caused is uh at least 1.6 million, if not more. Um, And please remember that these are direct COVID-related deaths. The healthcare cost that uh, uh, inability to access hospitals or healthcare institutions that are overwhelmed with COVID is a magnified number of that. Just in the U.S., we unfortunately crossed the 300,000 number. Earlier this week, Brazil, India, Mexico, and the U.K. have seen tens of thousands of deaths, as you can see on this table here. Um, and that said, we have seen some uh, over the last year uh, since COVID has uh, uh, hit the planet, we have seen some interesting population mortality and fatality trends. Um, just to go over some definitions, uh, mortality, the general definition of that is the number of deaths due to a specific cause divided by the number of the total population and usually reported per 100,000 persons. The CDC reported COVID mortality is the number of deaths due to COVID divided by the number, total number of deaths, usually represented as a percentage. And the case fatality rate is the number of deaths due to COVID divided by the total number of COVID cases, and again, uh, reported as a percentage. Now, we've seen some important trends. And for example, this is across many countries, uh, the case fatality rates by country. The difference between countries and time periods could be caused by many differences. Um, As you can see here, especially in the U.S., the case fatality rate of COVID patients in the U.S. is down from 6.7% in April to just around 2% now. And there are so many factors about this uh, reduction in mortality, some of them being we are testing a much younger, much healthier population back in March and April when testing was Uh, restricted to high-risk individuals presenting to the hospital, uh, we were testing a much sicker population. Therefore, the denominator was smaller. Secondly, um, the strain, as you remember, New York City was the epicenter of the pandemic back in March and April, and many of the ICUs and emergency rooms and hospitals were completely overwhelmed by the volume of patients coming in. Now that it's more of a Uh, the the, the cases are spread out across the country, the amount of ICU strain that each institution is facing is a little bit lower. And lastly, we know a little bit more about this disease. We have some medications that we know that work. We know many other medications that don't work. So just the common familiarity with this disease process may have something to do with the mortality rates coming down. We'll come to more of this in a little bit. Um, This is the CDC data comparing cases hospitalizations and mortality trends across the US. Um, here in, sorry, if this is a busy slide, but it has important data. Here in yellow on the lowest bar is hospitalization rates. On the red bar is percentage of outpatient AD visits for COVID-like illness. On the green bar, uh, uh, line here is the percentage of deaths due to pneumonia, influenza or COVID-19. And the yellow one again is the hospitalization rate. So it's important to know here that the peaks happen in a serial manner. First, you have outpatient visits of, ED, uh, of patients to the ED, followed by, in a, couple, in a week or two weeks, uh, increase in the hospitalization rate, and then finally, uh, uh, increase in the deaths. And this is really important to know, just because, as you know, across the country, we're seeing uh, uh, an insurmountable number of cases being diagnosed. And uh, following a week or two weeks, as we've seen in the past, you, we will continue to see the hospitalization rates go up. And following that, of course, we will see the death rates go up as well. Um, so just because uh, we should know that while a little bit of the spike in outpatient um, diagnosis is because of increased testing, a majority of this is because uh, the, the virus is continuing to spread in a completely uncontrolled manner and will follow with increase in hospitalizations and, and increase in deaths in a few weeks down the line. More data from the CDC, and this is the changing demographics of COVID-19 infections in the U.S. Um, As you can see here, during June and August, um, COVID-19 affected more younger persons in the U.S. than during January and May. And this, of course, has an effect on mortality. As we all know by now, age is a big risk factor for poor outcomes in patients who have been infected with SARS-CoV-2. Also of note, the median age of persons being tested also declined but lag behind the declines in median age of positives. So the infection patterns drove testing patterns, if you may. Um, these are, uh, uh, de- this is data from the Italian experience. And this is interesting because it gives you age specific case fatality rate in Italy over time. And if you look at this table, you can see that um, compared to uh, in April, June and August, there's really a little difference in uh, age specific CFRs or case fatality rates We're going down the train here. In the 50 to 59 age subgroup, case fatality rates are between 25 to 28%, 60 to 69, 95 to 10.9%. And then in the high risk category, above 80 years, 28 to 35%. So very little movement in the age-specific case fatality rates, which essentially means that uh, less severe COVID-19 in clinical outcomes, maybe because there is an increased proportion of infections being present and infections being diagnosed in younger patients across the world. What about COVID-19 mortality in hospitalized hospitalized patients? So this comes out of an interesting study from NYU where um, we looked at risk-adjusted fatality rates for patients hospitalized with COVID-19 in New York City. And again, this is our uh, March, uh, April, spring experience compared to July and August. And it basically, basically, this paper described an assessment of in-hospital CFRs or discharge to hospice in these two time periods. And as you can see here, there's a nice drop. 25.6% of all hospitalizations uh, related to COVID died versus around 7.6% in August. This kind of experience is also present in the UK, where mortality in patients with COVID-19 in the ICUs in England. This data looked at an assessment of in-hospital all-cause mortality and the unadjusted survival of at 30 days increased from 58% to 80% in June in the ICU. Survival improvements consistent across subgroups, including age, sex, ethnicity, and comorbidities. Um, So, so, you know, these numbers look reassuring, but we have to realize that there are many, many factors that play into uh, these calculations. Um, The rates should be adjusted for the changing demographics of people admitted over time, but these detailed data can often be difficult to obtain. And, of course, uh, when you're looking at uh, being in the center of a pandemic and hospital systems are overbent, thresholds for hospital admission may have changed over time, with now less severely ill patients being admitted as space became less limited. So while it's good news that less hospitalized patients are dying or ending up in hospice, um, there are potential improvements and lessons learned. So many reasons like we're mentioning here are increasing clinical experience. We know when to intubate these patients. We know when to wash them on high-flow nasal cannula and deliver supportive care. There is decreasing hospital volume, and I cannot allude to this enough. Um, the ICU strain, the staffing ratios that come by being in the center of a pandemic, uh, definitely uh, offer an altered level of care when when uh, dealing with a patient population compared to when dealing with a population that's somewhat within the realm of uh, normal routine care. Pharmacologic treatments, as you know, we've had significant advances in FDA uh, in, in medications that we can use for our patients. There's corticosteroids now, which are uh, part of our protocol. There, there's Rendesivir, which is the first drug, which is shown to be have, uh, which has been approved by the FDA. There are more biologics coming out, baricitinib being one of them, which, which hold promise. So there is some advancement in pharmacologic treatments. There is, of course, well validated non pharmacologic management, especially in the ICU, such as proning, even before intubation, such as self proning and following intubation. And lastly, a thing that's up for debate uh, whether now that we have more consistent mask wearing across many parts of the country, not all parts, but many parts of the country, whether having a lower inoculum uh, during exposure can improve outcomes or not. So, with that, I end my talk and we hopefully will. Uh, have the rest of the session open for uh, exciting question and answer session. Back to you, Tiffany.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Mukherjee, for that um, really comprehensive overview. So we'll start with this question from Teresa. Um, she asks about mortality data between August and now. So obviously, the the published data um, uses you know data from from August, but what it, what have we seen in trends um, between? August to now, and what have you, you seen in the ICU there in New York City?
1: Um, so we're seeing a bit of an uptick. Uh, uh, I would say it's somewhat of a U-shaped curve. So while we were seeing a high rates of mortality back in March and April, the dip that we saw in April in August is slowly beginning to worsen as November, December, and January come by. Uh, many, many reasons behind this. one we expect COVID-19 to come back again uh, and, they are, and the patients are coming back as winter sets in, but also uh, patients are coming in with uh, much advanced forms of disease uh, as well. Um, so while the numbers and the mortality rates are not as bad as March and April, our local experience here is that they're a little bit worse than what we saw in the fall.
2: Thank you. So that kind of um, leads into this question. Um, Cynthia would like to know, What is COVID pneumonia? Is there any evidence supporting the occurrence of a COVID pneumonia starting or occurring 30 days post-recovery in COVID cases?
1: Oh, that's a great question, Cynthia, thank you. So by COVID pneumonia, I mean uh, a viral pneumonia that's caused by SARS-CoV-2. So essentially an infection of your lung parenchyma uh, that's attributable to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, is there evidence supporting the occurrence of COVID pneumonia starting after 30 days? Um, that's a really good question. So a couple of thoughts about that. Uh, one is the viral initial viral pneumonia is very well described. You have an exposure. Within five to seven days, you have some form of disease ranging from all the way from asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic to critically ill uh, patients or death. And that disease, the viral pneumonia per se, lasts from Day seven to roughly day fourteen, roughly a one-week course. Following day fourteen, you have an aggravated host immune system, which often think makes things worse, which is where steroids play a significant role, and followed by a full recovery or a ventilated dependence and death. Now, you—that's the usual model that this SARS-CoV-2 virus follows. Um, After thirty days, you can have one of two things, uh, one of three things. One is you can have a bacterial superinfection of your underlying uh, pneumonia, which the lungs have been damaged by the virus and are now a perfect setup for getting a secondary bacterial infection. Two, you can have um, the host immune response, which can lead to a fibrotic ARDS and that can last up to weeks. And that can even, uh, you know, rage up to weeks after the initial infection. And thirdly, there are anecdotes, well, this has not been very well described. There are anecdotal reports, case reports, thankfully, so pretty rare in terms of reinfection of SARS-CoV-2 in a person who's recovered uh, a month or so ago. So while uh, you can have COVID pneumonia, pneumonia for a second time, it seems to be fairly rare, the cause. Okay,
2: thank you. And Twong asks, have you seen myocarditis as a complication of COVID or post-COVID illness? Um, what did these patients present with and when do you suspect it as a potential diagnosis?
1: Yes, and that's a great question, Tong. So yes, we, we have seen a fair amount of myocarditis, but just like any other severe viral illness, when you check someone for troponins or do a echo, a inflammation of the myocardium is not uncommon to see. Um, by the time of recovery, most of our patients have done the myocarditis has resolved. And while it's too early to say, since just because we still are fairly new to this this virus and its consequences, uh, we in our institution have not seen a lot of post-viral myocarditis cardiac dysfunction. As the virus and inflammation resolves, the inflammation of the myocardium also seems to resolve and follow-up echoes mostly have been uh, fairly well-preserved.
2: Thank you. Um, so Susan asks, um, you if you're still using remdesivir um, given the WHO stance.
1: Uh, oh yes. Um, so let's just talk about remdesivir for a quick second. So as you know, there are three or four big trials that have been that have looked at this. The one that comes to mind as the most pertinent in the U.S. healthcare setting is the ACT ONE trial, which showed that remdesivir improves your Duration of hospitalization improves your time to recovery and it cuts your hospitalization days from seven days to five days. Um, to us in New York City, yes, this was really important because at a point when the ICUs and the hospitals were completely overwhelmed, finding two empty beds for and getting people home quicker was well worth its weight in gold. Um, I, totally get where the WHO is coming from. The solidarity trial, as you know, was of five to 6,000 patients across many countries, uh, which showed that there was no benefit in hard outcomes from remdesivir, no change in mortality, no change in ICU admissions, more uh, recovery anyhow. Um, so the WHO guidance, looking at that solidarity trial and focusing on low to medium income countries has a recommendation against it. And the point there being, I totally get the point is that Remdesivir in lower-income countries and middle-income countries can be fairly expensive and uh, uh, to obtain, and there could be better energies and better resources spent towards oxygen supplementation, uh, steroid use. Um, and uh, and supportive care, I remdesivir. So short answer, here in the US, which is where act Two was performed and we were the, one of the centers, we're still using remdesivir as long as the patient meets study criteria that is hypoxic to 94% or lower and admitted.
2: Okay, thank you for that um, and reminding everyone of the different trials. Um, so Kathy asks if you could talk more about the causes for the potential reduction in mortality? She asks if, um, if there's any chance that it's a change in the virus itself um, or, as you said, more improvements in, in care protocols.
1: Um, you know, I don't think we have uh, viral genomic studies to suggest if, uh, that there's a change in the virus yet and it's a more milder form of the virus. Um, I think uh, treatment protocols have something to do with it, but by far not the only thing. My sense is that, uh, you know, patients are coming into ICUs that are less overwhelmed than when they were in April and you have better nurse staffing, better ICU space, better resources to combat uh, a a COVID uh, ARDS patient. Uh, We know that, in the non-COVID universe, just the ICU strain has a huge, is a huge determinant to uh, outcomes. And now that we are not as full in our ICUs as we were back in March and April, gives us more time to pay attention, closer attention to our patients. So I think that is a big factor. Better understanding the virus, predicting uh, outcomes, and a, a more nimble approach to hypoxia and providing high phonasal nasal cannula before intubation and so on is a big factor. And uh, And the treatment algorithms, of course, are a big factor as well. Um, The last thing, which is difficult to, uh, which is kind of intangible, is that, you know, as the community prevalence of COVID goes up and community testing is higher, many patients are coming into our ICUs and our hospitals with COVID being uh, an association and not a direct causation of their uh, admission. For example, we have trauma cases here who get tested for COVID, broken a, a, a bone test positive for COVID, their bone gets fixed, they go home, but that still c- counts as a, COVID, a sort of COVID admission because they tested positive. So there's lots of non-COVID AIDs being admitted to our hospitals, which bring down the mortality rate.
2: Okay, thank you. So Vaza Holly asks if hypercoagulation remains a complication that you're seeing often, um, how many patients are still um, having that complication and what's your What's your latest protocol and prognosis for those patients?
1: Great question. Yes, uh, hypercoagulability is a big, big uh, uh, challenge that we're facing on a daily basis. Um, As uh, we know, uh, the workhouse triad, all three of them are activated by SARS-CoV-2. And just to recount, the three uh, apices of the workhouse triad are stasis, which almost all of our ICU patients are in. Endothelial inflammation, and this is interesting and it's specific to SARS CoV 2. As we know, the spike protein invades the uh, ACE uh, receptors on the endothelium, and there's a a big influx of SARS CoV 2 proteins into the endothelium, which causes endotheliitis, further making the patient more hypercoagulable. And lastly, uh, through many autoimmune mechanisms, there's activation of the coagulation cascade. And uh, so essentially, almost all of these patients have a huge high risk to clot formation, not just the venous side, but also the arterial side. What we do about it, of course, we look very closely on a daily basis to see if a patient has a clot. Um, If there is an objective clot, a DVT a PE, we uh, treat as per standard institutional protocol. In the absence of that, we check D-dimers every 48 hours. And uh, if our D-dimers are above a certain threshold, uh, here we use a threshold of uh, 3,000 or is going up rapidly, and here we use a, a threshold of more than a thousand a day, we start an empiric anticoagulation. Knowing that this is not evidence-based yet, we are uh, piloting a trial here to look at whether this is the right approach to take, and also knowing that this is a risk-benefit analysis if the patient starts bleeding, we take a more moderate approach. But to your point, yes, we recognize still that these patients are very hypercoagulable for many mechanisms, and we have a D-dimer guided approach on when to Uh, Anticoagulate with uh, heparin.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, So we've gotten quite a few questions on um, immunity and the vaccine. So we're gonna try to get to some of those. Um, So Allison asks, you know, some persons that have had COVID um, have long lasting antibodies for more than seven months while others come in negative. What do we know about, you know, antibody status and immunity? Have we learned anything new recently?
1: Great question. And I think this is the time to clear some air. In my mind, all that an antibody tells you is that you've had an infection with SARS-CoV-2 in the past. Nothing else. It does not tell you uh, whether you're protected. It does not tell you whether you should get the vaccine or not. It does not tell you really anything else. And we know that there are these case reports of reinfections. Um, I I tell this with a lot of conviction here because locally, locally, Globally, I'm sure everyone is tired of this pandemic. Everyone's really tired and wants to close this chapter. Um, I would strongly urge our colleagues here, uh, and I do that locally as well, is that uh, having the antibodies, there is really no data to show that it is protective against a second infection. And you should be taking all precautions as you would, as if you don't have antibodies and wearing proper PPE, uh, social distancing, wearing masks, hand washing, and so forth. So, So in my mind, all that the antibodies tell you if you have been tested for these antibodies and they're positive is that you've been exposed and infected with the virus in the past, nothing more beyond that.
2: Okay, thank you. And so um, we've gotten quite a few vaccine questions. Um, Badunwa asks, um, with the vaccines that are available now, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that are getting emergency use authorization, did these vaccines mean that the person Will be prevented from getting infected with COVID 19, or um, what, what exactly are these vaccines preventing?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Again, uh, this is a great time to address some really good concepts here. Uh, so, first of all, I'm, obviously everyone's really happy that the vaccine's out. Um, Pfizer, as you know, has an EOA. Hopefully, Moderna tomorrow will have an EOA. And as we know, Moderna's um, Cold chain logistics are going to be easier to sort out than Pfizer's and so on. But um, on the question, uh, the Pfizer paper came out earlier this week, you know, looking at exactly what they did and how they looked at responsiveness. And it's really important to note that the vaccine stops you from getting a clinical infection. 90, 90 to 95% of the cases after the two doses. I say that with a little bit of precision there, because... Uh, I want to emphasize that it stops, it prevents most of the times from getting a clinical infection. It really, they didn't, uh, the the way they looked at efficacy is by testing, by looking at how many people on the vaccine arm versus the placebo arm had had symptoms of COVID and then tested positive on an RT PCR. Again, I emphasize that they looked for for prevention of clinical infection. And the reason this is important is because we know by now that 30% of us will be asymptomatic or pre symptomatic. And we could easily be infected. Many of us will be infected or could have been infected in the past without even knowing so. And the Pfizer vaccine trial and the Moderna trial not, did not look at asymptomatic infections. So while I urge all of us here to take the vaccine at the earliest opportunity, it is not the time to let your guard down. Especially, if, you know, you many of us are healthcare workers here and will be high up on the chain to get the vaccine. Many of us will be going home to unprotected uh, family members who might be more vulnerable, those precautions that you're taking right now, stay on till the herd immunity is, re- is reached. And we know that, or we know that this, the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna prevents all infections, not just symptomatic infections. And I think that discrepancy needs to be very well laid, laid out. Sorry, does that answer the question?
2: Yes, that does, thank you very much. So Olga asks if we know anything about partial immunity after the first dose in either of these clinical
0: trials?
1: Yeah, I think uh, you get to around 65 to 70% of the first dose and above 90% after the second dose. That's from the Pfizer paper um, uh, in the in the New England. And so even the first dose after a week or so after the first dose of the vaccine, uh, a fairly decent host uh, immune response should be expected.
2: Okay, thank you. And we've gotten a few questions on the duration of immunity. Um, can you speak at all to... Um, duration of immunity after these vaccines or the expected duration of immunity?
1: Um, Thanks, Tiffany. No, I don't think we know the data about that yet. Uh, Best case scenario, we take a couple of shots of this vaccine and we are protected for life. I really doubt that's going to be the case. Uh, You know, there's so many other determinants to this. As you can imagine, as the entire global population gets vaccinated, hopefully within the next six months to a year, Um, There's going to be a lot of selective pressure on SARS-CoV-2 and knowing what we know about viruses, they have uh, a fairly decent ability and inclination to mutate. So I wouldn't be surprised that this acts just like the flu vaccine where a different genome or a different strain is there in the community every year and we get and we are asked to get vaccines on a regular basis. Um, Whether it, whether in the absence of mutations, this vaccine offers lifelong immunity, I really don't know. We, I really don't think we know that yet.
2: Right, thank you for, for speaking to that. Um, so we have a, a couple more um, vaccine questions and then we'll move on to some of the questions that we've received on testing. Um, we've had a few qu- um, people ask, uh, can people who previously had COVID-19 get the vaccine? Um, and are, is it recommended that they get the vaccine?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we spoke earlier, a previous infection of COVID-19 does not necessarily uh, prevent you from getting a secondary infection. Thankfully, it's rare and thankfully, the second infection can be a little bit milder even if you get it. But there's a case report from Arizona a month or so ago where the second infection was much severe and ended up much sicker than the initial infection. So uh, we don't know enough on how the second infection sh- will affect us. So in the absence of more evidence and more noise on that regard, got, the, the vaccine should be taken, in my mind, should be taken at the earliest, as soon as you can avail of it to protect you from uh, what we know is a terrible, terrible disease.
2: Okay, thank you. So um, Joe asks, what is your recommendation for testing after having been tested positive for COVID-19? Um, do you test patients that are recovered to see um, if they're negative, or what's the latest recommendation on testing after infection?
1: Um, so the CDC recommendations now are basically after you've tested positive, ten days after absence of symptoms, you can, uh, you know, leave your social isolation and join the community back as much as you uh, as possible. Um, I guess the question is, I don't need to test for ninety days by my nursing home directors. Do I have immunity or reinfection for 90 days? I really don't think that there is any data to back that. I mean, I, I don't want you to get into a fight with your nursing home director, but maybe we can ask for what the rationale behind that policy is. Um, for example, if I have COVID today and I'm uh, febrile with a cough two months from now, I would like to get tested to see what my status is. Um, I don't, uh, As far as I, I'm aware, we don't, have any evidence to suggest that you're protected for three months after an initial infection.
2: Right, thank you for speaking to the rest of his question there. Um, and then Joni asks about the testing with PCR versus antigen testing. So the um, FDA has approved um, a few more antigen tests. Um, do you have any, can you speak to the differences between the PCR and the antigen testing uh, in terms of their specificity and sensitivity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, each test has its pluses and benef- and minuses. And the PCR is what we were using earlier on, the RT-PCR from a nasal swab or an NP swab. Um, pluses and minuses. Pluses was that it was fairly sensitive. Minuses was that it took a little bit of a long time to get it back uh, unless we started batch testing. Uh, antigen testings are great. Um, it allows for a quicker turnaround time, uh, but if you lose a little bit of sensitivity, uh, when you do that, so my, my suggestion would be: if you have a high pretest probability of a patient coming in from the community with ARDS and uh, cough and leukopenia, what have you, uh, interpret a negative antigen test with a little bit of caution.
2: Okay. Um, and Twong asks: Do you have any recommendations regarding potential risks with moderate to vigorous exercise for those patients after COVID nineteen infections? What's your recommendation to patients when they're re- covered and heading
1: home? Uh, That's a good question, Tong. So, you know, we know that COVID-19 infections have such a huge spectrum. And just to recount, you can have completely asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic disease. Unfortunately, the virus, as you know, is transmissible during that asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic phase, which makes public health such a challenge in this setting. And then you have mild disease, moderate disease, which essentially, uh, moderate disease being presence of a lower respiratory infection without hypoxia. Severe disease is uh, pneumonia with hypoxia. And critical disease is uh, patients who are uh, intubated on ECMO or what have you. Um, Following recovery, and thankfully many of these patients will recover, uh, the amount of residual lung dysfunction they uh, are left with will determine how much exercise they can partake in. Many of our patients, especially in the ICU, and I see a very small sliver because I'm an intensivist. I see the sicker patients are left with significant fibrotic lung disease and their ability to uh, participate in moderate or vigorous exercise is very limited. So on those patients, we try to get them into rehab and so forth. But I would suggest that if everything, if the patient is recovered, get them to exercise mm-hmm. or in a medium to moderate fashion as much as they can tolerate um, Uh, without becoming hypoxic or dysnic.
2: Okay, thank you. And um, Joni asks, do you recommend testing asymptomatic patients um, with a baseline and repeat pulmonary function tests and an echo in three to six months?
1: Um, In the absence of lung dysfunction, um, and by lung dysfunction, I mean, you're not hypoxic, you're not, you don't have x-ray infiltrates or CT evidence of ground glass opacities the lung uh, function should be fairly well preserved and there shouldn't be a need to uh, repeat or even do an initial pulmonary function test. Uh, Regarding an echo, this is an interesting question. If you have a sense of that the patient has viral myocarditis, uh, echo on discharge or on follow-up is not unreasonable to see whether any of of that viral myocarditis has long-term effects and the patient has now developed a viral cardiomyopathy. Um, So yes, in the the presence of lung injury or cardiac injury, follow-up tests with a PFT or an ECHO is reasonable. In the absence of those two, um, I don't see a reason to do either of them.
2: Okay, thank you. And we've gotten a few questions on this. Um, So going back to the vaccines, can you speak on the the vaccine side effects? And are there any concerns there?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. So from what the data, the data that we know of is that, as you know, there's two uh, shots of the vaccine, one taken on day zero, the second one taken between day 17 and day 22. Um, the most significant side effects to the first shot seems to be very similar to a flu vaccine. You have some local inflammation and pain around your uh, site, of immune, site of vaccination. Um, there's some mild years that, as you know, we almost always see after a flu vaccination as well. Um, after the second vaccine, the second shot, um, you should be expecting a fever. Around 30% of patients will have a fever after the second vaccination, uh, after the second round of vaccination. Uh, but again, this seems to be a low-grade fever with very few people having to take time off from work uh, or having to rest at home. There's this one-off event of uh, hypersensitivity reaction Um, There were a couple of cases in the NHS as a case today from the US. But again, those seem to be really, really uncommon and uh, seem to be happening in patients who have a predisposition to anaphylactic reactions from previous vaccinations and so forth. So unless you, uh, if you have had an anaphylactic reaction to a previous vaccination, the CDC recommends that you talk it out with your healthcare provider in the absence of that um, and uh, especially knowing the consequences of not being immunized and being uh, susceptible as a healthcare worker to you know, COVID-19 pneumonia, um, my, my inclination would, would be to urge all of us to take the vaccines as soon as you can avail of it.
2: Okay, thank you. And um, we have a question from both Susan and Don asked this, your opinion regarding vaccine use in pregnant patients.
1: Uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't have an opinion on that. We that that's uh, uh, population wasn't studied. It was excluded from the Pfizer trial, age less than 16 years and uh, uh, and pregnant women. So honestly, I don't know how the mRNA vaccine would potentially affect a pregnancy or the pregnant mother or the fetus. So unfortunately, uh, sorry, I really don't know the answer to that.
2: Right, um, and. Um... We've had a couple of questions on COVID and flu. Are you seeing um, any complications of the overlapping um, COVID surge with flu season? Are you seeing patients that have come in with both or having a difficult time distinguishing between the two? Uh,
1: Great, great question. And uh, and we're actually recruiting for that research study as we speak. The the good thing, and if there's a small sliver, uh, you know, a small silver lining out of this whole pandemic is that flu has taken a backseat so far. Um, we know that in the summer, uh, the Southern Hemisphere, which usually sees flu season in summer, uh, barely had any flu, flu um, cases. And that's mostly because people were socially distancing, wearing masks, hand washing, being very particular about protecting themselves from SARS-CoV-2. That flu was uh, uh, a nice advantage. And we, they did not get Brazil, Argentina, Australia barely had any flu earlier this year. Um, here in New York and many other parts of the U S while it's still early in the flu season, we should uh, we usually see the flu spikes in January and February. So far it's been a really pleasing low number of flu patients coming in to the hospitals and the ICU uh, in New York, especially where mask wearing is fairly uh, compliant too. That said, every, every time we test for COVID, we also test for flu our uh, testing, uh, panels have SARS-CoV-2 and influenza A and B done together. Thankfully, we haven't had any influenza patients this year yet.
2: Okay, thank you. And um, Enrique asks if you know if there's any recommendation on waiting to get the COVID vaccine if you've recently had a different vaccine like um, the shingles vaccine or the flu vaccine?
1: No, there's no need or reason to wait. Okay. Uh, the CDC ha- doesn't, uh, you know, comment on waiting on, on getting that vaccine.
2: Okay, um, and then we've gotten quite a few additional questions on the reinfection cases. Um, people are um, interested to know if they seem to be more severe or less severe than they were the first time.
1: Uh, great question. Um, again, thankfully, reinfections seem to be fairly uncommon. But the few reinfections that have been reported in the literature. Most of them have had a milder form of disease, except for a couple of case reports, one from Arizona, which showed that the second infection was much, much worse and the host immune system completely got dysregulated with the second infection compared to the first. Um, you know, because COVID and SARS-CoV-2 infection is still so new to the population and the dynamics of this is still evolving, um, I would say that right now, most reinfections seem to be milder Uh, but I'm sure more and more data will evolve as time comes.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Mukherjee. That's the last question we have time for today. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining in. And as a reminder to view the COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks.